0: Our reading comes from Romans chapter 4, and I will read 1 through 5, and then skip over to 13 through the end of the chapter. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted uh, as a gift, but as, he, as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls to existence things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offsprings be. He did not weaken in faith, since he was considering his own body which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he, he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the dead from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. War of the Lord. Be
1: God. Uh, you know one of the more gratifying experiences of being a minister is being able to talk to people about their spiritual lives. And when I was a very young minister talking with college students, they would often bring me uh, their questions. Uh, and they realized, uh, and oftentimes they would stump me with those questions. One conversation stands out in particular of those conversations was a young man who I would describe as growing up just immersed in Christian stuff. Christian family, going to church, Christian schooling, etc. cetera. But when he came to college, like many people do, he found his behavior changing and doing some of the things he knew he shouldn't be doing partying, the like, whatever. But he was upset by what he was doing, and so he came to talk to the young campus minister about it. Well, at that stage in the game, I was, you know, fresh out of seminary and, you know, full of information, and so I put together whatever presentation I could for him to sort of run through it all, uh, hoping maybe something would stick. Well, he listened to me very patiently, but at the very end of it, he said this He said, Look, Les. Take this the right way. It's never a good way to start a sentence, is it? Take this the right way. But he said, I've heard everything that you've said before a thousand times. I could repeat it back to you. Uh, He said, and honestly, I even think that I believe some of that stuff. My problem is that information, it just hasn't taken hold in my life. And so I'm wondering if my problem is that I don't lack faith. He said, honestly, I don't even know what it means to believe anymore. Now, look, I don't have any memory of what I said to this guy after that, but that question haunted me relentlessly. Because what does it mean when I say I believe something or that I have faith in something? Because it can't be argued that Paul has hung a massive amount of his theology on this idea of justification by grace. But every time he mentions it, he says justification by grace through faith. In other words, there's a whole lot hanging on this doctrine of justification if we don't understand faith. Now, as soon as I start talking this way, I begin to get either the blank look or the squinting eyes from the audience. Because usually there's a couple people that are like, well, this is a silly question, Les. And there's a couple sort of responses people give when I ask them that question, how would you define faith? The first category is what I'll call the, um, the positive mental state people. These are folks that are like, well, Les, once you get to yourself into a spot where you have purged your mind of any fashion or form of doubt, then you're believing. But I've always found this unsatisfying for a couple of different reasons. The first of which is, really, that how do you know what that feeling is? That's awfully vague to hang that much on and if I'm not supposed to doubt anything, how do I ever get to the point where I'm asking questions about my Christianity, which is a necessary thing if I'm ever going to understand it? The second category of people is what I'm going to call the intellectual leap into the dark folks. In other words, these people, when people offer objections to their faith, will simply respond with, well, that's why you've got to have faith. Yeah, I know the Bible is full of errors, and Jesus may or may not have been a real person. He's probably a myth. But hey, that's why you have to have faith. Is that what it is? The problem I have with that particular conception of faith is if you read through the New Testament, you find these people are not telling people to take an intellectual leap in the dark. They're providing proof, eyewitness accounts. They're trying to convince you of something that is true. No, I think what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 4 is he's appealing to the one historical figure that every Jewish reader would have to pay attention to, and that is Father Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish nation. Because if it can be proved that Abraham's acceptance by God was via justification by faith, then the Jews would have to concede that Christianity was not a new movement. But rather, it was the fulfillment of what God had been doing throughout biblical history. So what he does in chapter 4 is he sets up for us a series of three contrasts that I want to unpack this morning on our path to try to figure out what we mean by faith. We want to talk about faith versus boasting, faith versus working, and then finally faith versus doubting. Let's take that first, uh, first. faith versus boasting. I, I mention this all the time because of how profound I think it is, but it bears repeating. The Bible believes that everyone is an active believer in something. Now where am I getting that? Well, look at Paul's argument. In Romans 3, 27 we looked at last week, Paul asked and then answered the question, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Well, then he picks it up again in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, we did the very brief once-over on that word boasting uh, last week, but I had a chance to pull out my old dictionary of biblical imagery. Yes, that book exists, and look up this word boasting, and it's actually kind of cool. Apparently, the word originally was used in a military context, that is, when a general would gather up his uh, troops, oftentimes he would think to himself, how do I get all these men to go rush into certain death? Well, he would do something called a boast. He would say things like, you know, tonight, men, we're going we're gonna to watch the birds feast upon the flesh of our enemies, or something to that effect. The Bible does this too. Psalm 44, 5 says, through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. That's boasting, okay? It's very in the Bible. We actually have a modern form of this, do we not? Every now and then, the uh, ESPN cameras will be able to get into the, uh, the locker room before the big game and hear the coach's speech, and it's just this absurd string of like college, or, or like uh, sports cliches. Come on, men, we're gonna go out there and give it 110%, <laughs> whatever that is. Uh, you know, There's no I in team, right? Uh, or we're gonna leave it all on the field tonight, we say what's he doing? He's getting his team ready by boasting, we say. So here's the point. The Bible, though, explains that human beings, all human beings are born with an innate instinct for boasting. Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Okay? Here's what I want you to pay attention to from those verses. There is no option not to boast. That is, it is an instinctive part of our humanity to look to something as the place where it's like, now that is what makes me who I am. You know, I talk about being in a previous life where I'm sitting in fraternity houses, talking to guys about... um, that big high school football play. Come on, guys, you know the one, right? Sit around on the, the lunchroom and talk about the when you finally scored the, the big game or you came in, came to the very end. And here's what's crazy. Now that I'm in my 50s, you're still talking about it. For decades you can live with those accolades. My guess is, ladies, you've probably stood before a mirror at one point and thought to yourself, okay, fine. I inherited my mother's hips. Nothing I can do about that. But I certainly do remember that boy in college who told me I had beautiful eyes. How? How can I accentuate those eyes? Right? In other words, when someone gives us those accolades, we begin to boast about them, which means we pour in a significant amount of our significance into it. Okay, now go back to the text. What is Paul trying to say when he says boasting is excluded by a law of faith? Well, we're going to get to the how of that at the next point. But it's got to be noted that what God, Paul is saying is that God does not want his people to boast in anything that's inside of them. That's what he's saying. And his plan of salvation is to get us to shift our boasting off of ourselves and onto him. That's faith. Now, why would he want that? Well, simply because he knows that when we boast, we condescend to other people. Hey, remember, the whole point of the book of Romans is not only to unpack the plan of salvation. It's also talking about this new humanity that's being formed because of that gospel. And in this humanity, you can't have people looking down on one another. You can't have a society where people are using measuring sticks to judge them. Why? Because those are hard places to live. My guess is many of you grew up in homes that were quite like this, maybe even with the best of intentions that drove you to achieve and to succeed so that you could eventually one day boast in what? Your spouse, your kids, your, 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 your wealth, whatever. I mean, my guess is some of you would also describe that those homes could be oppressive places to live in, especially when you didn't measure up. But see, Paul is trying to envision a community of Jesus' followers where we don't use measuring sticks against people. We're all on the same level. We're all possessed by the same demons. We're, we're all rejoicing in the same grace. Because there's something very attractive about a community that's a place of acceptance and love instead of being a place that's full of scrutiny and judgment. Right? So here's the question, where is the inertia of your boasting taking you this morning? Because whatever you boast in, that's probably the source of your greatest insecurity and fears as well. And what Paul is saying throughout this example of the father Abraham is saying, the weight of your soul's longing can only ultimately be born in God. Now look, one small little aside before we <clears throat> go to the next point. And it's about this whole topic of evangelism. I do realize that since we're thinking about what's coming uh, on Palm Sunday with our missions conference, talk of evangelism makes us very unnerved because what if I get the presentation wrong? What if somebody asks me a question I can't answer? But I always want to tell people, it's not that complicated because all you have to do is listen to people long enough to figure out what they boast about. What if they put all the camp in? Get them talking about that and find a way to work into the conversation this question. How's that going for you? (laughs) Because more times than not, they're frustrated. It's dividing them. It's pushing them away. It's isolating them. Because that's not the way we work. Okay, so that's the first contrast, faith and boasting. Secondly, though, we get the big one. And that is Paul's contrast between faith and works. This is where we get to the heart of his argument in chapter 4, verse 5. It's a giant statement about faith. He says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here we go. The opposite of believing in Paul's mind is working. And you'll know that you have faith when you stop working. Okay. What in the world does that mean? Well, it can't mean, first of all, that we don't do anything as if like faith is some kind of, I don't know, activity paralysis or something like that. Now, I'm going to stay home today because the apostle Paul told me to stop working and have faith, right? Because if that's what he meant, it would go against how Paul has kind of set up the entirety of the book, if you remember. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul said, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about, and here's his phrase, the obedience of faith for the sake of, the name, of his name among all the nations. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Mostly because it combines a required and a hoped-for obedience that Paul wants it to bring about, and that God certainly desires from his people, But it is a distinctive quality of obedience that emanates from faith rather than from other sources. Regardless, Paul is not talking about spiritual inactivity. So he can't mean inactivity. What he has to mean is is that the saved person no longer trusts in their obedience as the way in which they're going to be saved. In other words, Paul is talking about people who are proud of their good works because they think that they somehow commend them to God, which is nuts if you still believe this at this time. He just spent the last three chapters talking about how absolutely impossible that prospect is. So the question then hanging over chapter 4 is this. How can someone reach for obedience without it becoming something that they're trusting in to stay on God's good side? That's the question. Well, here's how it comes down to. It all comes down down to how you count those actions. This is absolutely huge. Look back at verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Notice how many times the word counted is used in this chapter. It's actually 10 times in just Romans 4 alone, and it's essential to grasp. And it turns out that to count is actually an accounting term in the ancient Near Eastern world. To credit something is to confer status on it that it didn't have before. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Let's imagine for a moment that you decide you want to put a, a garden bed uh, alongside your house. So you go to Home Depot to rent a tiller. till the ground, make yourself a lovely bed. After it's done, you love it so much you want to expand it. So you go back to Home Depot, rent the tiller again, come back and expand it. Finally, you think that looks so good, you go back a third time so you can put a bed on the other side of your house. You think it's so great. Well, the fourth time you go back to Home Depot to rent it again, the guy behind the desk is going to say, Hey, you know what? If you do one more rental, you're actually going to be dangerously close to paying for the machine. Tell you what I'll do. Why don't we count everything that you've done up until this point as partial payment for the tiller so you can take that home and just till up to your heart's desire? Now what did he just do? He granted a new status to your rental payments. He didn't change the payments. What he said was is we're going to see those in a different light. We're going to count that as being different. See what he's doing? Okay, so follow the argument here. God says, "I'm going to look at Abraham's belief and I'm going to change the status of that belief." Actually, I'm relating to that belief now, Abraham, as if it's righteousness. Through that belief, I'm going to confer righteousness on you. Okay, so do you see the contrast he's making? You see, when you're working, in Paul's minds, you're so desperate to establish this record for yourself that commends you to God. But faith is when you abandon those efforts and, and, and begin to relate to him on entirely different terms. And this is what's so crucial because most people, when we start thinking about getting right with God, look, I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but my guess is you've been at some religious turning point in your life at some time where you thought, you know what, I need to get back with God. But what happens is most of the time we get preoccupied with the bad things we're doing, right? With our sins. And let's be honest, that's appropriate. But that is not what Paul is talking about when it comes to faith versus working, Paul is saying that biblical faith happens when you actually change the way you're thinking about your good works. Your sins are only part of the problem. (laughs) The bigger part of the problem is the stuff you think you're doing right. And so Paul says, you're not even a Christian until you've looked at even what you thought you were doing well and said, you know what, when it comes down to it, I I was only doing those things to celebrate me. That was, to, that was to sort of continue the less newsome show and all this, to just establish my record for God. And you suddenly realize that even religion itself can be done as a way of self salvation that's about me. Look, here's the point once you repent not only of your sins, but also of your righteousness, you're believing. You stopped working. And that's why Paul says it that way. This is why it's so weird for my student friend to come along and say, look, I'm at this point where I don't know how to believe. The old hymn writer Horatius Bonner used to tell a story he had heard from a minister of his. Bear with me. Who would say when someone offers that objection, it's a little like somebody wandering through a desert, completely parched and utterly exhausted. And they stop and realize they can't take one more step. And then they say something like this, you know what? I'm too exhausted to sit down and rest. If you were standing next to me, you'd be like, "Ah, uh, that doesn't make any sense. Because <laughs> the only requirement for resting is to be exhausted. What do you mean you don't know how to believe? Belief itself is the resting. <laughs> That's what it is. Looking away from my works. Now look, before we move on to the next point, how, how, how do we do this? How does this happen? Well, I think it begins by starting to look at those things that validate you. What are the things that make you feel worthwhile? Because more than likely, that's probably what's keeping you from God right now. Because I look at those things and I put my faith in them, not in God. And Paul is simply saying faith is not so much something that has to be conjured up in your mind. You, Everyone around us has what we might call little f faith in something. What really has to happen in becoming a Christian is to transfer one's life's trust off of the things and putting them onto the finished work of Christ. That's biblical faith. That's the opposite of working. Remember, Paul is not saying that Abraham believed in God. That's not faith. (laughs) Instead, he believed that when God made promises, those promises were based on someone he could trust. That's the difference. It's not just faith in general. Uh, It reminded me in the first service of the old quote uh, from uh, President Eisenhower when he said, America is founded upon a great religious faith, but I don't really care which one. No, all respect to the general, right? That's not what the Bible is saying. In other words, we can be doing all these things. We can believe that God exists. We can believe that he's loving and holy. We might believe that the Bible is God's word and, and even show great reverence for God. Yet the whole time be seeking to be our own savior, And our own justifier by trusting in all of these works, whether they're religious works, intellectual works, moral works, beauty works, career works, all those things have to be turned away from. That's why faith is the opposite of works. All of those things are exhausting in themselves, are they not? And so faith is resting from that exhaustion and humbly collapsing into God's grace. That's a glorious vision for what faith is. So faith is not boasting and faith is not working. But thirdly and finally, faith is also contrasted with doubting in this passage. Look, let's return one last time back to Abraham's life. Because you look at verses 20 and 22, and it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. That word is also translated doubting. No doubt made him waver. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's worth underlining or highlighting. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. All right, lean in on that. Because I love to get people's reaction to this passage. Because it looks a little bit like Paul is bragging on Abraham. And he kind of is a little bit. But I still think that when we get to heaven, I'm going to ask Abraham if he cringed just a little bit when he heard Paul talk about him that way. And here's the reason why. Because Abraham's faith was so much more about its focus Than it was its substance. Remember, the faith that Abraham had was not about the quality or even the quantity of his believing, but it was in the certainty of the one upon upon whom he had put his faith. That's where verse 21 says, fully convinced that God was able. In other words, what his faith was, was contrasted by saying, I know he can do this. That's what I know. So therefore, faith in many ways is a whole lot more than worrying about whether or not my faith was clean, or whether it was super intense, or even, strangely enough, whether it was absolutely certain. That's crazy. That's a fascinating sort of thought, but it's meant to be looked through. This is the illustration somebody gave me years ago. Actually, two of them. I just thought of another one. Um, Faith is like a windshield, okay, that's in your car. What's the purpose of the windshield? The purpose of the windshield is not to get fixated on the windshield, If you do that, you're going to wreck the car because you're not paying attention to the road. The purpose of a windshield is to be looked through. And so the real point of the windshield is what am I seeing on the other side of it? And so therefore, what what Paul is saying is Abraham saw through the eyes of faith to a God who was faithful, who would take care of him. The other illustration I thought about was the two men who are racing through the woods running away from a bear. And all of a sudden, they come across a frozen river that they've got to scurry across in order to get to safety. The one individual looks and goes, You know what? I've been coming to these woods for forever. I know exactly what date it is. I know how long it's been cold. I have absolute certainty that this ice is going to hold me as I scurry across it. The other guy's like, I don't know where I am. I'm just trying to get away from this bear. Maybe this guy next to me knows what he's doing, but I am scared to death. But I think, honestly, I'd rather freeze to death than get mauled by a bear, so I'll take my chances and go. And the two of them scurry across the river and reach safety on the other side. But do you notice what's interesting about that story? <laughs> two men with completely different v- versions of faith, different sort of qualities of faith. But When it came down to it, it had nothing to do with their ability to believe. It had everything to do with the quality of the ice, Does that make sense? That's the difference. That's the way in which Paul is unpacking this. And for Abraham, what he said was, is I am placing all of my bet on Yahweh because he's the one who's going to be able to pull me through. And you know where it all went down? Genesis chapter 15. That's where the phrase, Abraham believed God and credited to righteousness, occurs is in Genesis 15. And it's an amazing story because Abraham is doubting. He's got this promise from God, and he wonders whether that promise is really his. And so God sets up a covenant ratification ceremony. Animals are split in half and laid side by side, and Abraham goes into a trance. Suddenly, in the midst of the trance, he sees the fiery presence of the Lord come down and pass in between the pieces of the sacrifice. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about these covenant ratification ceremonies There were ways of enacting the consequences of breaking the covenant. Remember that? So here's what's happening. This bloody mess that's laid out before Abraham is simply God's way of saying, Abraham, may I become a bloody mess like this sacrifice if I ever fail to fulfill my promise to you. If I ever fail this, then this will happen to me. So when you fast forward to Jesus on the cross, And there's all these these teeming masses of people walking past the crucifixion, hissing at Jesus, at the bloody mess that he had become. You suddenly realize that is absolutely the fulfillment of what was being predicted in Genesis 15 in the most beautiful and powerful of ways. Now, why is that important? Well, buckle up for a second. Because every Bible scholar who studies Genesis 15 makes note of the fact that God never asks Abraham to pass through the pieces himself, meaning what? Well, it means that what God was saying to Abraham is like, oh, Abraham, how are you going to know? I'll tell you how you're going to know, because here's the deal. I'm going to make this covenant with you. Absolutely. And I'm going to keep my side of the bargain. But you know what, Abraham, I know you and I know your children and I know your children's children. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to break this covenant over and over and over again. You and I call it the Old Testament. This is what he says, he goes, so therefore, there is only one way for me to know that I can fulfill this promise, and that is not only that I'm gonna keep my side of the covenant, but I'm also going to take on the burden of your side of the covenant. I'm gonna fulfill both parts, and that's the only way that I can guarantee you your assurance of salvation is if I do both of them. Do you see the logic in this? (laughs) Between you and me, when I was growing up, everybody would be like, oh, God is faithful to keep his promises. And I was like, yeah, but that's not my problem. I'm not really worried about him. I agree, he's gonna keep his promise to punish covenant breakers in the way in which he said he would do so. But what Jesus is saying is, and what Jesus came along to fulfill was, I'm not only here to show that I'm here to demonstrate God's side of the covenant, I'm here to fulfill your side too. To do both. So there's Abraham thinks to himself, man, how can I believe what this God is saying right now? You know what? A God who would make a promise like that, a God who would make a promise that's that secure, a promise that it looks like even I can't mess up, a promise that will last throughout the ages. Yeah, of course I can trust a God like that. Absolutely, I can put my faith in him. Look, here's the point. Verse 17 says that the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's Paul saying that if I'm afraid today, as so many of us always are, that I don't have the ability to believe any of this stuff. I don't know how to believe. What I think he's saying is, is you can trust this God. Stop trying to put it back on your shoulders Stop trying to sort of jump through yet another hoop so that somewhere down the line you can take credit for this because that's what our hearts want because he's the kind of God who brings stuff into existence that didn't exist. He's the kind of God who makes dead people alive. He's the kind of God who heals the hurts that feels like they can't be fixed. He is the kind of God who mends wounds that hurt to even think about. So he says, come to him, come to me. Because when you do, that's what it means to believe. So do you believe? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would walk us into that. Father, we've got a lot of confusing ideas about whether we have faith, but we need some clarity from your word that we might dig deeply and figure out what this boasting, what this working, and what this doubting is doing in us and to us. But Lord Jesus, would you give us a clear vision of yourself, even while we sing this last song When we sing out, may we never boast in anything. May that become true in our hearts, that you would purge us of our boasting, that you purge us of our working and clarify our doubts by showing us you. That's the only way that'll happen, for we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.